So, so for those of you who don't know me, my name is Matthew. I'm on staff here at Well of Life, and normally I'm relegated to the uh, morning congregation, so it's always an absolute privilege when I'm, I'm allowed to escape out and hang out with the cool kids in the evening. So, oh, I know you're the hipster congregation. Don't even, don't even pretend you're not. Um, so it's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful to be with you. And this morning, or oh, sorry, this evening even, I want to carry on this uh, theme that we've been looking at of the evangel- evangelism explosion. We started this new series uh, last week when Mike spoke on what it is to be empowered with the Holy Spirit and this idea or this notion that unless we are filled with God's Spirit, unless we kind of surrender everything we have to Him and allow Him to be Lord, then anything else that we're going to want to do, any evangelism efforts, are going to be futile because they need to be built on this foundation of empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so today I want to kind of look at almost the next chapter in this journey, this idea of, yes, okay, I'm empowered by the Spirit, I'm ready to go, but what does that actually look like? What does that actually mean? And we're going to look at two things today. We're going to look at first this cry of the heart. I believe that within every single human being, there is a cry for God There is a deep yearning. There is something that is built within them that seeks God. And then second, that we need to be a community of people that are listening out for that cry, that are recognizing that cry in our midst and then respond with a lifestyle that is on gospel mission, that we respond with a way of living out of our life, of living a certain rhythm, a certain heartbeat where everything we do is evangelistic. That it's not just about a single event, that it's not just about a specific moment, but it's a lifestyle that glorifies God. It's a lifestyle that draws people to Him. So that's my hope that we're going to cover this afternoon. Let me just quickly pray. Almighty God, we just thank you now for this moment. We pray, Lord, as we look at your word, as we wrestle with your teaching, that you will anoint this moment that you anoint the words that I proclaim, that you open our hearts and our minds to hear what you have for us, and we will leave this place transformed. In your mighty name, God's people said, Amen. Fantastic. So, on the day of Pentecost, Peter stands up, and he starts preaching the first evangelistic sermon of the church ever. He has no notes. He hasn't scribbled down a few thoughts on the back of an envelope. He hasn't been to a preacher training class. He gets up filled with the Holy Spirit and he starts explaining the gospel message. He starts stating that what you see in your midst are not these uh, crazy men drunk, but they are filled with the Spirit. That this is what Joel had prophesied. And then this man, this God-man, Jesus of Nazareth had come and he started teaching, he started sharing and he ended up on a cross and he died and three days later he rose again. And in that moment, the first evangelistic sermon was preached. And we read this amazing thing in Acts 2 verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brother, what shall we do? You see, there is power in the gospel. Whenever the gospel is proclaimed, there is an effect that takes place. It causes things to change. It causes people to react. Each and every single person who heard that sermon on that day, 
something changed in them. That cry of their heart suddenly was remedied. That longing, that yearning for more, suddenly what Peter was sharing, it started to make sense. And every single one of us has that cry. From the day of our conception to the day that we die, every single heartbeat that our body has is an expression of that cry for God. Is an expression for that cry for something more. Is an expression for that cry that says that what I see around me, that the reality that I face my uh, face uh, in, cannot be it. There has to be something more than just this. And we see this picture of this in Exodus. We know uh, that the story of Moses. He escapes from Egypt, ends up in the desert. He's uh, kind of left the, the grandeur of the palace, the grandeur of the court, and he's now a shepherd, herding sheep. And suddenly one day, as he's uh, wandering around, he sees that this bush is on fire. Now, that wouldn't have been anything particularly unusual. You know, if you're going to be in hot, dry places, things are going to catch fire. But then he started to look at it, and he realized there was something different about this. For even though this bush burnt, it wasn't being consumed. And suddenly he heard the voice of God speak to him. And at the end, God says this, The cry of the Israelites have reached me, and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. God had heard the cry of the heart of the Israelites, and he responded by sending Moses. God today hears the cry of every single person and he responds by sending you and I. We get to be on gospel mission. We get to have that invitation of God saying, I'm going to send you. And Moses obeyed and we know the rest of the story. He goes and he, and he delivers the uh, Israelites out and they wandered the desert and eventually the next generation enter in the promised land. And I think there is this beautiful picture in this story of what evangelism is. It's being prepared to be like Moses and hear the call of God and to go and dwell and incarnate in the midst of humanity, in the middle of the dirt and the desperation and the pain, and walk and journey alongside people as they leave the yoke of slavery, as they leave the bondage of sin, and as they head towards the promised land. For me, that is what evangelism is, and this is what God is inviting us to do. Now, some people may say, my life is good. I have no cry. I, I like my job. My boss is nice. I get to leave early on a Thursday morning. You know, I get paid enough. Pff, family, kids, perfect. Everything's good. And you're like, whoa, 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 but you have this cry of the heart. And they're like, no, no, no. Life is good. Don't worry about it. And I think sometimes the problem is that we go, oh, okay, well, they obviously don't know you, Jesus. And we just move on. And it's not that they're lying. It's not that, you know, that cry isn't there. But they haven't recognized it yet. They haven't heard it within their own soul, within their own heart. And then there are other people, and we see their brokenness, we see their pain, and they're almost just too aware of their cry, but they think it's a cry for justice. They think it's a cry for love. 
if it's a cry for companionship, for identity. And all those things are true as well, but they are symptoms of this much bigger cause. They're symptoms of this need for God. So whether somebody recognizes the cry or not, or somebody identifies the cry as being something else, it doesn't change the reality that that cry is there. And God is calling us to be a people who recognize it, who listen out for it, who respond to it, and are prepared to go into their midst. As Peter stood, filled with the Holy Spirit, declaring all that God has done, we then read this in Acts 2.37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter, what must we do? Then skipping down to 41, those who accepted this message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number daily. You see, the gospel is God's universal solution to sin. The gospel is the remedy to the cry of the heart. And nothing else will ever, ever come close to being able to achieve that. The gospel is the only hope that humanity has. Peter understood that on that day of Pentecost. And today, 2,000 years later, we need to be the same. We need to understand that the only hope that the world has is for the gospel. The gospel that delivers from sin. The gospel that speaks in to that cry. The gospel that saves people. So Moses didn't respond to the Israelites by holding a seminar. He didn't conduct an evangelistic outreach event, but he simply went and was with them. He walked with them. He didn't just go, well, I know where the promised land is. See you in 40 years. He suffered alongside them. And again, as I've said, that is the picture for us. And I believe today, more than ever, we need to be people who are prepared to recognize that cry in the world around us. We need to be people who hear the call of God and who says, I am sending you and say, yes. Strengthened by the power of the gospel, fused with the Holy Spirit, this is what evangelism is. So then in the rest of Acts, we get this wonderful um, snapshot or this wonderful summary of what the early church lifestyle looked like. So turn with me. To Acts 2, start at verse 42. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and wonder at the many signs and wonders performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to the number daily those who were being saved. So Luke gives us this summary of what the early church was doing about the lifestyle that they were living. And we get this really critical verse at the end in 47. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. 
There was obviously something in the very DNA, in the very fabric of the early church that meant that as they lived out this lifestyle, it was causing people to realize there was something different about this community, that there was something different about this group of people, and seek the solution to that cry. There was something about how the early church was living that was causing people to be saved. And that is what I want to be able to be said about my life. That is my prayer and my hope that could be said about Well of Life, that there is something in what we do that causes the Lord to add to our numbers daily. Not because it's good for us, not because we want to see big churches or we want to see more congregations, but because we are fundamentally talking about a people's eternal destinies. We're fundamentally talking about people's salvation. We want to see people saved for Jesus because we want them to be known by God. We want them to become and step into the promise as a son and daughter of the living King. This is what we want. This is what we desire. And so I think, or I believe this morning, as we, uh, this evening, that as we look at that lifestyle, as we look at those couple of verses in Acts 2, hopefully we can draw some stuff out for how we should be living our life. So Luke lists eight sort of key components to what this early church lifestyle First one, uh, Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayer. At the heart of this community was a devotion to God's word. Now, the early church at this point wouldn't have had the New Testament. They would have just had uh, what we know today as the Old Testament. But they had the apostles. They had the original men who walked with Jesus, who sat at Jesus' feet, who learned from Jesus, who saw what Jesus was doing. And they would have shared their stories. They would have shared the parables. They would have shared the miracles. And so this community became devoted to that teaching. And so I think our first point is that we need to be people who are devoted to God's word. We need to be people who are grounding everything we do out of the rich treasures of Scripture. If we believe that the gospel is the solution to sin, then it's in God's holy word that we find out what the gospel is. Second thing is that they had fellowship. And I think sometimes fellowship can often be us, uh, misunderstood. I think sometimes we see fellowship as like a Christian version of hanging out. You know, if I phone out Heron and say, hey, you want to go to a movie, somehow that's fellowship. You know, if I go for dinner, that's somehow fellowship. But I think we actually miss the point of what the early church were talking about. I think fellowship is the bond that binds the church together that allows us to pursue a common vision. If it wasn't for fellowship and we gathered here together, we would have 120 different agendas, 120 different ways of seeking, ah, this is what I think God is saying. This is what I think God is doing. But I think in Christian fellowship, in spending time, in doing life with each other, we start to have a heart of one accord. We start to have a commonality in our midst. And then we start to see, well, where is it that God is doing, uh, going? How then as a community can we journey towards that? I think fellowship is critical. And I think often fellowship gets sidelined 
seen as team sports, seen as something to do on a Saturday. But it was so crucial that Luke, when he's writing this summary of the church, puts it right in there after devoting himself to the teaching and breaking bread. This community was a group that placed the cross, the death and the resurrection of Christ in the very center of what they did. That sense of breaking bread as we got to do this evening, as you know, is that chance to kind of dwell in that moment of realizing that Jesus Christ, the the, the God-man, the God-King, died on the cross for our sins. He paid our penalty. He dealt with the separation, with the, the wrath of God that separated us from God. And then three days later, he rose again. This is something that, you know, part of the story that we we need to remind ourselves on a monthly, on a weekly, on a daily thing. And so that's what the early church were doing. As they were breaking bread, they were reminding themselves that everything that they stood for, that everything that had taken place was as a result of Christ's death and resurrection on the cross. We need to be people who ground that in the very center of everything. The next verse, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. They were a community where the miraculous broke in. They were a community where there was an expectation that God was going to do something. And I want us to, if we look at this verse, I want us almost to not focus on the the, the wonders and signs, though these are obviously important. But in this idea that people were filled with awe. I think our problem is, again, our word awe or awesome has become sort of corrupted. We say, you know, something is awesome when we stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon and and survey the the vastness and the majesty of creation. And then on Thursday, when I had a wonderful burger for Wendy's, I said, this was awesome. There is no way that both that Wendy's burger and the Grand Canyon can be described in the same words. But somehow we've lost its meaning. We've lost that it's, it's actually about wow. That wow moment. That moment where God just takes our breath away. The word literally means to be in reverence or to have fear of God. And so what was happening? The signs and wonders was causing that the people in their midst to go, whoa, this is God. This is God moving. This is God acting. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold their property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. They were a community that took seriously the needs of others both, I think, within the community, within, so for us today, within church, but also for the community outside. They held their possessions. They held their finances with an open hand. So if anyone needed, they could take. And if if they needed themselves, they could also take. Because fundamentally, they realized that nothing that they owned was theirs. All of it was God's that had been entrusted to them. And finally, for the early church, they were committed to both corporate and small group worship. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. 
They continued to meet in the temple. They continued to be a part of the daily worship, of the daily prayers, of the daily sacrifice, because they realized that there is something important about gathering together as community. When we come on a Friday night and we declare the praises of God, something happens in our midst. There is something significant. These are significant moments. We believe that God, for, for whatever amazing reason, chooses to enter in chooses to dwell in our midst. But then they were also in small groups. They were also met in each other's homes. You know, the apostles were the original life group leaders. Nothing we can ever do will ever pioneer because everything we just see in Scripture. Because they realized there was something about that small intimacy. There was something about that kind of sitting around a dining table, about exploring, well, what is it that God is doing? What is it that God is speaking into my life? Where do we think that God is taking us that is significant? And so it set up this pattern, this pattern of we gather so that we go. It set up this rhythm, this heartbeat that was so critical to the early church. And I think when we start to discover that heartbeat, when we start to discover that rhythm, when we start to orientate our lives around that, then suddenly we see Amazing things happen. Suddenly we see and we can claim that promise and the Lord added to their number daily. So 2,000 years later, as we're in Dubai, as it's coming into summer, as it's starting to get hot, it may feel like what the early church was experiencing is a million miles away, but I think it's closer than actually we may give it credit. They too were a small group in an occupied land. They too were going against the culture. They were going against the grain of society. They had to subvert what society was doing. They had to kind of be different. They had to be that light and salt so that the people around them would see that there was something different in this community. There was something serious in this community. We need to be people who are grounded in the gospel, and who are empowered by the Holy Spirit. And I think the challenge is, it's all easy to sort of see evangelism as just something that other people do. We are a church who believe, obviously, in the Ephesians 4 giftings. And we believe that certain people have a special anointing or special calling from God and their lives to perform. And one of them is evangelists. But I think the problem is, sometimes we've read that verse in a way that means someone else is called to be an evangelist, so I don't need to bother. Somebody else is anointed to be able to do that, so it doesn't matter whether I do it or not. And I think that is absolute rubbish. Every single one of us, whether that is our gifting or not, is called to proclaim the good news. Now, this is just as much to me as it is to you. I hate evangelism. I'm rubbish at it. I find it so ridiculously scary. You give me a group of Christians and I can talk for hours. You give me a non-Christian on the street and I have nothing to say to them. I mean, it is, it's ridiculous. But what I feel or what I'm good at or not good at cannot be the thing that dictates whether I share the gospel or not. I am um, this morning when I preached this message, I really felt the Lord remind me of this quote, and I sort of um, 
guessed my way through it and I actually went out uh, this evening to, to find it. So you may know a guy called Penn Jillette. He is um, uh, a magician who performs in Vegas, quite a big guy. And he's a very strong atheist. He's a very ardent atheist. But he um, was asked about Christianity and he says this. He says, a few years ago, um, uh, sorry, uh, a few years ago, Gillette recorded a short video about someone who came to talk to him after one of his magic shows. He said the guy was about his age and, was, and had participated in one of the acts as an audience member. The man complimented Gillette on the show, then said, I brought this for you. The man held up a small book. It was a New Testament with the Psalms, something that could fit in a person's pocket. I wrote in the front of it, the man said, and I wanted you to have this. The man explained he was a businessman and not crazy. Now remember, Gillette produces all kinds of videos about sort of how rubbish Christianity and, and really kind of propelling, you know, the atheist argument. Gillette, moved by the man's gesture, recalled, he was kind and nice and sane and looked me in the eyes and talked to me and gave me this Bible. I've always said, Gillette explained, I don't respect people who don't evangelize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe there is a heaven and hell, and people could be going to hell or not, getting eternal life or whatever, and you think it's not really worth telling them because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you hate somebody to not evangelize? How much do you have to hate someone to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? Gillette then offered this example to illustrate his point. If I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that the truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point that I tackled you and this is more important than that. This guy was a really good guy. He was polite, he was honest and sane and he cared enough about me to evangelize and give me a Bible. This is not a game. This is not something that we can choose whether we want to participate in or not. We are talking about people's eternal destinies. And I think that challenge of Gillette to say that if we are not prepared to do this, then how do we view the world? How do we honestly view our neighbors? How do we honestly view our work colleagues? Our members of our family, if we believe that their eternal destiny is hell without God, but yet not prepared to say anything. For me, that is a real challenge. For me, that is why this is so important. And the early church got that. That's why they lived their lifestyle in that way. And I think there's something or two kind of key things from this. First, it means that everything we do should be about declaring the gospel message. St. Francis of Assisi is attributed to saying to preach the gospel at all times and only when necessary use words. There should be something about our lifestyle. There should be something about the rhythm. There should be something about the heartbeat as we go about our day-to-day life that causes people to see the glory of God in our midst. Whether it's through signs and wonders, whether it's through radical generosity, whether it's through simply living life together, whether it's that sense of hope, of purpose, this lifestyle 
needs to be causing people to say there is something different about this person. And second, the devotions to the apostles' teaching. I think we can get in this trap of staying within our own community, of staying within our own bubble. But the very last thing that Jesus said was that we were to go out to the ends of the earth. This cannot just be a community because you guys are great, but if I was going to hang out with you just fun, it wouldn't be here on a Friday evening. I'm here because I believe that God has something that he wants to do. I'm here because I believe that what we do in this place matters, both for us now, but also as we go out into the world. And so we need to be prepared. We need to be ready to explain the gospel. In Acts 5, it says this, Day after day in the temple courts of our house to house, they never stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. They were ready to explain their faith. They were ready to explain and share what was going on. And so I think one of the questions, one of the challenges, is if somebody came up to you tonight and said, explain the gospel to me, would you be able to? Would you be able to walk them through what Christ had done on the cross? We need to be devoting ourselves, grounding ourselves in God's word So when that moment comes, when that question comes, like Peter who stood up on the day of Pentecost and suddenly was able to connect what was going on and realize that a message needed to be proclaimed, he seized that moment. We need to be able to do the same. And so, in conclusion, I think we need to think so... I think we need to reorientate our thinking about evangelism. I think we need to stop seeing it as a one-off event or stop seeing it as something that other peoples do. We need to take this call of God seriously. I believe that God is calling each and every single one of us to turn our ears to the world, to allow God through his spirit to help us recognize that cry of the heart. And then to be in that moment, to be in that place where we can respond and we can say, I know that you're crying out for identity. But Christ is the only one who can fulfill that. I know that you're crying out for companionship. But Christ is the only one who can fill that. I know that you're crying out to just be released from this bondage, from the burdens, from the yoke of slavery that the world is trying to entrap you in. Christ is the only one who can fulfill that. And so the only way that we can do that is in relationship with God. We can only do it when we're infused, when we're empowered by God's Holy Spirit. And so today, church, Do we believe that God is wanting to break in? Do we desire to be filled with his Holy Spirit so that we can go out into the world, so that we can respond to that cry, so that we can claim that promise? Or are we just going to stay in our own bubble, stay in our own community, happy, while the world goes to hell? That is the choice. It may sound rough, it may sound harsh, but on this matter, the gospel is incredibly black 
and white. But I believe when we learn to hear that cry, when we learn to recognize what, God, what people are saying, then we can claim this promise. And the Lord added to them daily those who were being saved.